Hello and welcome to Plymouth Beneath the Surface, where we will meet inspiring people from Plymouth that have oriented their lives and careers around the ocean. Are you ready to dive into Plymouth waters to explore career options, discover underwater ecosystems, understand marine research and conservation initiatives? I'm your host, Ruzo Sian, a final year student in marine biology at the University of Plymouth. I'm really grateful to have you here today and I hope you enjoy this dose of inspiration in this new episode. Before the episode 9 starts, I wanted to say first a huge thank you to everyone that is being really supportive and listening to the podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Imogen Napa from the University of Plymouth, talking about her research on microplastics. But I would like to ask you to bear with us a bit for this episode. As you know, I'm recording this episode, or like almost every episode, during the pandemic. And I'm trying as much as possible to do it outside, because obviously we can't meet inside. And I still think social interactions are really important. If you're from Plymouth, you probably know that. But if you're not, Plymouth is really, really windy. So even with like a really good pair of microphones and trying to find a sheltered spot, it's it's really still really windy. So you may in this episode hear a few seconds or a few minutes where the sound is not really great and it can be a bit annoying and you can hear, you know, people chatting around. And so yeah, I'm just asking you to bear with us and I hope you still enjoy the episode. Thanks again for listening, for your support. And if you have any questions, please feel free. And yeah, I hope you enjoy. So welcome to this new episode and I'm with Imogen. Welcome Imogen. Hello, good to meet you. Can I ask you to introduce yourself, please? So my name is Dr Imogen Napa. I'm based at the University of Plymouth, where I'm sat right now. And I'm a research fellow and I specifically look at plastics and how they're entering the environment. How did you get here? Or like, what's been your sort of path? Uh, My path? hasn't been very conventional. Uh, I never did marine biology. My marine biology is terrible. (laughs) I actually did my first degree in biomedical science. I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I left school. I think there's such a pressure when you're 18 to know what you want to do for the rest of your life. And I honestly just had no clue. I went to a football match with my dad in Lincoln. And at the same time, there was an open day at Lincoln University. And I flicked through the prospectus in the science section. And I saw that there was biomedical science. And... With no much thought, I ended up there for three years doing my undergrad. Then it became more obvious that I wanted to look at environmental pressures. And although I really loved science and my undergrad gave me a really good foundation for lab work, it wasn't the direct route I wanted to go in. But then the jigsaw puzzles of where I wanted to go and the path became more and more obvious the more I thought about it. And my supervisor at the time really helped me to make links of future directions. Then I did a master's in biotechnology. Then I sent Richard Thompson, who's my boss here at Plymouth University, an email out of the blue saying who I was, what I wanted to do. Uh, It was a definite stab in the dark, but I haven't left Plymouth University seven years later. So so I haven't had a a break from university. I've been at university for many years, but really enjoying the research. Yeah, you're enjoying it. Yeah. Cool. So how long have you been in Plymouth now? I've been in Plymouth since 2015, so about six, six, seven years. 
I actually grew up in a small seaside town called Clevedon, which is near Bristol. So it's quite close to where I grew up. Never thought in my wildest dreams I'd end up in Plymouth. So it's quite interesting to know where you end up. But my mum always says you connect the dots going backwards, but not necessarily forwards. Yeah. yeah. And because you in the Navy as well? Or the Navy Reserves. Okay. So it's like a part-time thing. I was always umming and ahhing whether to join full-time, but never wanted to leave research. So being in the Navy Reserves gives me kind of the best of both worlds, where I can still have the majority of hats that I wear as science, but then leaves me maybe one or two months a year to go and do something completely different. Yeah, how yeah. do you balance both? Like, What do you like in being in the Navy that is so different from being in a research doing, you know, research in microplastics? I think it's elements of the both, you know. So in the Navy, it's, you're out at sea, it's the ocean. Marine science, out at sea, ocean. But I think it's, I hate being glued to a laptop. I, I hate emails and Zoom meetings. And I get that the necessity, but there's something nice about being outside and getting some fresh air, just doing something completely different. And I think that variety keeps your motivation alive. So having research that I'm really passionate about, and we were talking before the podcast started about how my research doesn't really make much logical sense. I've done a lot of weird and wonderful things. And it's the kind of same in the Navy, that it's just completely a different flavour. And I come from quite a military family, so I guess I get that side from there. But it's the adventures and the stories you can tell on a campfire. And then you kind of apply that with being a natural explorer as well. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's like mixing adventure with your research as well. Yeah, maybe I'm just a bit of an adventure seeker. And I'm, I think I'm always searching for the new opportunity. And my partner makes fun of me and says that if I'm not busy or if I haven't got a plan of my next thing that I want to do, I panic. So it's probably me being a bit stupid and wanting to fill my time. But I've had some good adventures along the way. I bet. Yes. So now onto your research, can you tell us a bit more about what you've been looking at or yeah, what do you do? There's so much yeah. to talk about. So My research, I think the best thing about my research is it's really simple, but it links back to common sources of plastic that we use in our everyday life that we might not necessarily think about. The first bit of research that really helped to like the fire of how research can make change in the world is looking at microbeads and facial scrubs. So I actually, hand on heart, used to use these microbeads and facial scrubs. I just never thought that there would be plastic in the products I was using, that I could be washing my face with plastic. And when I thought about it, and when I knew it was a problem, I thought it'd be beads, these microbeads that I could visually see. But we wanted to test how many microbeads could be in one bottle, just to see what the impact was. Because you could wash your face, it go down the drain, potentially through the sewage treatment works, and then into our ocean. And I probably looked crazy because I was buying, I think I had over 30 facial scrubs that I'd go to the supermarkets and buy. <laughs> so they probably thought I just wanted to look really clean. And then I was in the lab until crazy hours in the morning because it was just taking me so long to try and filter them. And that's because it wasn't visual microbeads, it was more like a fine flower of plastic. We found that in one bottle, there could be up to three million tiny plastic particles. So on a squirt on your hand, there could be around 10,000. So you're washing your face with 10,000 tiny plastic bits, which could potentially make their way into the ocean. But it's from this research that it changed 
a lot of people's opinions that you could go to the supermarket and have a really powerful voice and choice in what you're doing in that moment. By looking on the back of an ingredients list and seeing if it contained polyethylene, if it did, you just would buy another product that didn't contain these plastic microbeads. So consumers were having a choice in the voice of what they were doing. Industry listened because it was getting very unpopular to use these microbeads. And then it led to government change where this research influenced legislation around the world banning microbeads. So it started from this crazy project in the first year of my PhD where I extracted lots of tiny plastic particles from facial scrubs. But then the change that it made was worldwide. Um, and it really showed me that research is very powerful and it can even be the smallest change that can make a big difference. And I think you shared something recently on Twitter on how three years later, like you looked back at this microbeads in facial scrubs and there's known anymore? Yeah, so we did the first study and um, in the picture you can see the glass vial and it's got all the tiny microbeads in it. It's quite shocking because you don't expect that your facial scrub could be quarter plastic, these tiny plastic fragments. And it's kind of weird to think that you'd be washing your face with all these plastic fragments as well, with these plastic beads. And then the next picture is us. And three years later, we went back and tested the same products, and we found that all of them had removed plastic. Whether that's from industry change, from consumer voice, or from the legislation, I'm not sure. But the best thing is that they removed it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was the first part of your PhD? Yeah. And then what? what's next? <laughs> <laughs> so then... The next part of my PhD was looking at washing our clothes and it surprised me actually. I knew our clothes would be made out of polyester or acrylic but I didn't put the two and two together that that would be plastic. Even though I know it is, I just didn't really think about it. Because uh, when I think of plastic I think of stuff that you'd find on a beach clean or in your kitchen like bags or bottles. But actually the clothes that you're wearing, to prove point, this jumper is actually completely polyester. And we wanted to look at how washing different fabric types could impact the number of fibres that come off in the washing machine. Because when they're swishing and swirling around in the washing machine, tiny fibres are coming off and then potentially, like the microbeads, making their way into our oceans by bypassing the wastewater treatment works. So we, well, I tested three different jumper types, polyester, acrylic and polyester cotton blend. And I was next to this washing machine for hours and hours and hours and it felt honestly like it was never going to end. Uh, I'd come down to the coffee break feeling a bit befrazzled, drink a lot of coffee and then go back up to the washing machine. But the results were really interesting. So we found that up to 700,000 fibres could come off your clothes from a typical clothes wash. Now if you look for how many times you wash your clothes per week, per year, and then multiply that for a street, a town, a city, it's a huge proportion of microfibers potentially making their way into the ocean. And then what happened a couple of years later is we showed how damaging the quantity of microfibers that could come off our clothes when we washed them. And then we teamed up with National Geographic and Sky Ocean Rescue and we tested different inventions that have been designed to stop the fibers going into the wastewater. So to try and be solutions. We found that they varied in efficiency. Uh, but one of the products was over 80% efficient at capturing the fibres. So now we're in discussions with Parliament to see whether this is going to be the future of washing our clothes and whether filters and washing machines are going to be needed in the future. Yeah, going okay, to use that in legislation as well. Yeah. To make sure they 
already built into the washing machine like this sort of filters? Yeah, they're doing it in France. So France, I can't remember the year, I think it might be 2027 or 2025, that all new washing machines will have to have a washing machine filter in. And I believe Luxembourg has just passed a similar law. So it's, it'll be interesting to see where the UK goes with it. It's just one piece of the puzzle. You know, there'll still be fibres that aren't captured, but if they can be captured in a solution, then what have we got to lose? As long as the products that have been designed to capture them aren't creating any more environmental risks. Yeah. yeah. It's quite funny, like what you were saying, when you think of plastic, it's easy to think of what you find on a beach clean and, you know, a plastic bottle or a straw or but not actually coming from your clothes at all. Yeah, it's all the stuff that we can see that's the most obvious. Like, at the moment, I'm finding so many blue face masks that people are using from the COVID pandemic. So it shows you how quickly plastic usage can change. But it's often what we can see that is the most troublesome because it affects us the most. But actually, if it's coming from our clothes and microbees and cosmetics, we often just need to widen our widen our eyes to have a look at all of the different sources. What other research have you been doing? <laughs> so then looked at microbeads, looked at fibres, and then the next research piece that I did, which was actually the longest experiment that I did during my PhD, looked at biodegradable and compostable plastics. So I, it was the first experiment that I set up and the last experiment that I collected results from because we buried biodegradable, compostable and just normal conventional carrier bags in the sea, the soil and also left them hanging outside. And pro in proper blue pizza results or uh, experimentation, we just wanted to see what would happen, how quickly they would break down. So the bags that were exposed out in the air, they completely fragmented within nine months they went to tiny tiny bits doesn't mean it's disappearing it just means that they were going to microplastics faster even the compostable ones yeah all of them all so of them. the biodegradable the compostable and even like the normal carrier bags okay. that's because plastic breaks down by something called photo oxidization where it introduces an oxygen uh, molecule into the the polymer basically because it's a double bond it breaks the, the polymer to two bits. So just imagine it fragmenting literally into microplastics. You could argue it's worse because you can't pick up all of those microplastic bits. It'd be much easier to pick up a bag. But the thing that got people's attention the most was that biodegradable bags could still hold a full bag of shopping after being exposed in the soil and in the ocean after three years. So we had a a full bag. It's basically my shopping for the week and we had bananas and pasta and uh, oranges and biscuits in there and the bag was still strong enough to carry that weight after four years after three and a bit so okay. about three years four months I think and when I think of something that's biodegradable I assume it's going to be like a piece of fruit that would disappear within weeks not years the compostable bags did disappear in the ocean but they were still there in the soil after three years but really weak and what this research aims to just try and vocalise is that we're not saying they're not a solution, but often these products, these biodegradable, compostable plastics will have to go into industrial composters that need really high heat and really high moisture, which they're not going to get in the environment. So in a football stadium where everything could be collected, let's say all these cups, and then go to the right end of use facility, perfect. But when it's being marketed to people like you and me that these are an environmental 
environmentally beneficial product, but we can't get them to the right end, end processing facility. Yeah. Facility, yeah. It's, I wouldn't go as far to say it's greenwashing, but it sounds like it. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's <done> a bit. <laughs> yeah. And we had a bit of a heated discussion about our research with the manufacturers of the plastics. It, it got a bit nasty and a lot of finger pointing from them, I would say. And it's almost like they're trying to silence our research for something that we were just trying to be honest about. And it's in a much healthier position now where we're discussing it together. And it's not like we're trying to point the finger at each other, but how can we use our expertise and their expertise to make sure that we're educating consumers and people that are going to benefit from these products to make sure that they are of environmental benefit and can get to the end of life facility that they need to get into. Yeah, I guess then as a consumer, it's really, really easy to get lost. Oh, so confusing. You know, when you see bioplastics, biodegradable plastics, compostable plastics, also biodegradable plastics, there's so many different types. It's, I'm confused by it. Like, so, you know, and I do this as a job. So if, I, if I'm confused by it, then I reckon a lot of the, the consumers, a lot of what people are buying, they're also confused. And so then what would you say to consumers? What can they do? The best advice I've ever had is to be environmental, use the stuff that you already have. And I think there's such a pressure that you should go to a plastic-free shops, which are great, by the way, and get completely new containers that are glass and bamboo. But if you have some manky old takeaway containers that still do the job, and they still do the job, that's the point, just keep using them until unless you can fix them or they have to be thrown away. We just need to keep not needing to get new items because that's kind of like our, our greed, as you could say. And I'm guilty of it as well. I always want new clothes. So, you know, if I go to a plastic-free shop and I see some nice containers, I'm like, ooh, they look really nice. Should we go about changing consumers' uh, habits or should we change corporates, industries? Or should we try to change legislation and act at the government level? What's the... I mean, I, I bet the three of them are really important. But yeah. What do you think could be the quickest and the more efficient? You just nailed it there. And when I try and explain solutions, I bring in those three. It's kind of like a triangle that all interlink. So you have consumers, industry, and then governments enforcing legislation. So... For consumers, it's the same with the microbeads, knowing that they have a really powerful choice. And what I've heard before is to think ocean with every decision that you have. So even choosing a facial scrub that won't contain microplastics can stop millions potentially reaching the environment. Only washing your clothes when you need to or not buying unnecessary products that you could already have in your house. And then educating others, because educating others is how we make change, especially to industry and governments. And looking at industry, industry needs to consider environmental issues right from the beginning of when they're designing a product or, uh, or anything else that they're designing within their company and making sure it's that whole circular economy. So thinking about how it's going to be disposed of or used again. And then government need to enforce these decisions and they need to be ballsy and they need to be quicker to act, I would say. Um, and plastic is incredible. Uh, it's an incredible material. I originally wrongly started my PhD thinking it was evil and it was completely not necessary. And the only way we would clean up our oceans is to completely get rid of it. But actually, 
it's revolutionized our lives for the better and you know the clothes I'm wearing and plastic I've got plastic shoes plastic headphones talking to you through a plastic microphone so it's not going to go away anytime fast and it shouldn't but what needs to change is our behavior and our mindset on how much we use it and realize it's a material that can last a lifetime not just for a few seconds yeah exactly like it's been created to last and that's one of the greatest thing about plastic is as you said like it lasts and we can use it for a really long time but the way we use it as a single use and with like a really short life that's where the problem is i remember uh richard Thompson uh saying a lot about that and we were like yes yes because everyone is like oh you know plastic is so bad and i think in the public's opinion plastic is kind of like the bad guy especially like i mean it's so easy to get rid of and i think it's quite important especially from someone like you that is like that's your job emphasizing on the fact that plastic is not the problem it's more the usage that we do of it yeah exactly and i mean the pandemic's really shone a light on how useful it is when our priorities changed and understandably we were more concerned about our health and our family's health so environmental matters took a bit of a back burner for a short period where we were just trying to figure out where the heck we were so a lot of people were using these single-use face masks single-use gloves in hospitals look at how much PPE is keeping people safe so it's an incredible material and depending on where we are in the world and different pressures it will always be in a bit of a, a roller coaster but sometimes on a roller coaster the the change you have to make is right at the start when you're doing the the biggest climb to have the biggest dip to keep that momentum going and i think that we've made that dip and now it's just making the rest of the ride relevant to the rest of our lives and do you think plastic pollution is kind of basic knowledge in the public people are aware of it yeah i hope so I'd say that everyone's aware of it to varying degrees. I think that because it's so visible and even just walking around Plymouth and we have a lot of seagulls and <laughs> where I live we're always picking up rubbish because the seagulls get into the bin. But as soon as there's litter on the ground it just makes it's not a thing for a better word, it makes it feel dirty and unclean and you just have that feeling that you know that it's there's litter on the ground and it's the same when you go to the beach and you see it covered in plastic you know it's not meant to be there and we should clean it up so i think people understand it from that aspect but then knowing all of the different sources of which i still think we're still yet to undercover some i didn't really think about microbeads and facial scrubs until i did the research or washing our clothes so i think that we're uncovering a lot more but there's probably still scary research to come about how it affects our health and the health of our oceans as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you in terms of pressure or threats to the ocean, how is plastic pollution actually ranking, you know, compared to I don't know, climate change and overfishing and habitat loss? <laughs> Are we not like emphasizing quite a lot on plastic and not enough on this other threat? I was actually speaking to someone the other week about this and it, yeah again all links because it's so visible where climate change is is less visible you can't really see actively how warming is impacting the planet but plastic i could see a blue face mask on the ground and think that's not meant to be there and put it in the bin so yes i think it gets a lot of attention and some of that attention does now need to be 
spread around to other matters. But what I hope and what I think in plastic can be used for is a gateway. So people care about plastic and the environment. And then you open the little gate and then you introduce people to other environmental matters. So it doesn't seem so overwhelming and it can be done bit by bit, but all of it interlinks, which is good for understanding it, but bad for the planet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I feel it's, as you said, like it's kind of easy to you know, change your habits and what you buy and how you consume. And then, yeah, as I said, opening that gate for people. But then you don't want people to stop at plastic and, you know, get rid of plastic in their house and then think they save the ocean, you know? Yeah. You want them to, like, carry on caring about the other threads. And I think it's it's okay to be not perfect. Like, I'm going to murder the quote. I can't remember exactly how it goes. We don't need a few people doing it perfectly. We need an army doing it imperfectly. Like just people trying. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I forget my bags when I go shopping. Um, I've got a puppy at the moment that, you know, when he was going up, he was peeing on everything. So I did a lot of washing, and especially washing of my clothes. So there's stuff that I need to improve on. And a lot of it is down to budget and time. But as long as you're making an effort and improving, that's all we can ask from people but that has to be facilitated by the options given to us by industry, as long as that they're affordable and it's not making being plastic free or environmental a middle class, upper class thing. And that needs to be enforced by government. And so you've seen how it is in England and hmm. in the UK, and you've also seen how it is in other countries like India. Can you see a huge difference, like the way people relate to it? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we're incredibly, incredibly lucky that we have a waste management system. And even though it seems wrong that we just bury our litter or we we try and recycle a proportion of it, most of it does go into landfill. Uh, in other places like India and Bangladesh, uh, we were doing some research out there looking at plastics around the Ganges River. So we did a project with National Geographic called Sea to Source, where we literally went from the sea, so the Bay of Bengal, all the way up to the Himalayas uh, in India. So we did two expeditions, one pre-monsoon and one post-monsoon. And we had three different teams. We had a socio-economic team that were looking at people's perceptions of plastic, especially the local communities, because the local communities and people that live there are the best people to know what the solutions are a land-based team that were looking at litter on land and how it can make its way into the, the river system. And then also the water team, which is the team that I was in, that were looking at the impacts of plastics within the river itself. And also a 3D model, so looking at how much is in the sediment, the air, and also the water. But something that was really prevalent when I was out there was that we can bulk buy in the UK and a lot of Western countries. So even just getting a shampoo bottle or food packaging. But out there when they're literally living per day, it's a lot of single use plastic. And you could say that's an effect from Western culture because most of these packaging is going to come from Western countries. But in India and Bangladesh, in a lot of communities, they haven't got waste management facilities. So they have to deal with the waste themselves and plastic doesn't go away. So the only way that they can get rid of it is to put it into the river or have a mismanaged landfill site. And it's completely just not their fault. They haven't got the support system needed for them. I actually went to one village that the government had supplied bins, but supplied no ways for the bins to be collected. So they were using the bins to get the rubbish and then chuck it into the river. So 
every country has its own things that they need to improve, but I think it turns into sometimes, which you shouldn't do, a finger-pointing exercise, whether that be between countries or within governments or within industry. And actually, we should all be... Helping not, each other. Yeah, exactly. It's, things that India are doing are going to be better than what the UK is doing and vice versa. And we should be learning from each other and discussing because education is key. And if we stop this finger-pointing and support each other, we can make some big changes. And you found some in the Himalayan... Um, is that the Guinness record that you got? <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's weird. So two separate uh, studies. We did go to the Himalayas in uh, the Sea Saw Strip, but then randomly, and my boss at the time said, "Do you want to have some s- snow samples from Everest?" And I thought she was joking, uh, but then lo and behold, we actually managed to get a research project together, and an expedition team went to Mount Everest. Did you go? No, the closest I got was the University of Plymouth. But receiving the samples was still really exciting. So it was like Christmas in the lab. So I had all of these metal containers and I use one of the metal containers as a drinks bottle these days. It's actually in the lab at the moment or in my, my office. Uh, so we took loads of snow from Everest Base Camp all the way up to near the summit and we found microplastic in all of the samples and it, it correlated to where people were. So the most plastic was found at base camp where most people spend a considerable amount of time relaxing and gearing themselves up for the big hike. So we found about 70 microplastics per litre of snow. But even just below the summit at Everest balcony, we found about 10 microplastics per litre of snow. And it's almost like where people go, they're leaving a trail of breadcrumbs of plastic, probably coming from our clothes or ropes or tents that they were using. So the polymer types linked to what they would be using as equipment up there. And we, yeah, we got a Guinness World Record for it. And even though it's, it's, it's funny to say and it's quite a, a cool achievement, but it feels weird to celebrate because it feels like we're celebrating Mount Everest and near the top of the, the world being polluted. Um, but I hope that that achievement can actually show people that the planet is heavily polluted with plastics, whether that be from the deep sea to near the top of the tallest mountain on earth so rather than it be a celebration I hope it counts as a, an eye-opener. Now back to Plymouth a bit maybe a bit more boring than my Everest. No I love Plymouth. <laughs> yeah so how so you work in the Marine Litter Institute? I always get this wrong the International oh, Marine Litter, Litter Unit okay with Richard Thompson. Okay how how is it? Yeah I, I really enjoy it the We've got a huge team now, so in my first couple of years of my PhD it was just me and Richard, but uh, our team has really blossomed and grown and we have some fantastic researchers all looking within their own specific research area, whether that be tyres and looking at how tyres could impact marine organisms, to looking at biodegradable plastics or more washing clothes and looking at fabric types and how we can find, find solutions. So it's yeah, a really vibrant, good community to work in. And for those that don't know, Richard Thompson, he's the one who came up with the microplastics term in scientific research? Yeah, so they kind of call him the godfather of plastics, of microplastics. He's, um, in, in my personal opinion, the big wig of plastics. He's extremely passionate and a fantastic scientist. And he has really helped push scientific knowledge of plastics into the area that we're in at the moment. So Plymouth you could say it's kind of like a research hub in terms of plastic pollution. 
Like oh, it. 100%. And I'm probably maybe a bit biased, but I know a lot of people think the same. Um, plastic is definitely through Richard Thompson's work and how much he's built it up. He's built this fantastic research team. And I would say that plastics is very much at the heart of Plymouth Uni. And then would you say it's also at the heart of Plymouth tea? Oh, yeah, I'd hope so. I think it kind of spreads by osmosis and I know that Plymouth City is trying its best to try and eliminate single-use plastics and like any community we can always do better but we're getting there as long as we're having the discussions between research and community and industry and local business owners and a good charity that brings it all together is Surfs Against Sewage also Marine Conservation Society so we've got some amazing organisations under under our feet here. Well, I think we're going to get to the end of the episode, but I'd like to ask you, what would you say to people that want to maybe go into research in plastic pollution? Because I feel there's a lot of people that want to you know, study this. It's kind of like a hot topic, I think, in science and marine biology. So what would you say? Good question. I would say, do the research that you're passionate in because on the days where you're in the lab and it still seems never ending or you're just continuously writing and sat next to your laptop, you know why you're doing it because that passion lights a, a fire inside you. And I'd also say try and get as much extra experience as you can, whether that be volunteering for a charity or trying to get your head around papers or even if you can, volunteering at uh, a research institute just on the off basis. It will help you get some of those really basic core skills that will help you in research. Cool. And where can we follow you and your work and your research and your expeditions with Nadia? <laughs> so, uh, Instagram and Twitter, it's just at Imogenapa. Uh, people can also just give me an email if they just search my name on the internet. My staff page at the University of Plymouth will come up. I'm always happy to answer any questions. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank okay. you so much. It was fun. Thanks. Nice.